Everybody comfortable? Yeah. Get your ass up when I'm talking. Hey, take it easy. It's showtime. It's showtime. Yeah. Feel the magic and soul of the YBs. Yeah. Welcome to the show. Take two. Alrighty, Davis Show. Uh, we got a lot to get into. We definitely got to go off top. Uh, then jumping in with uh, our guy from the Athletic Chicago, senior Bulls writer down there on Mayberry, is going to join us to talk about everything Bulls, a little bit of the NBA. Um, maybe get a little stuff out of him about what's going on in his life. Uh, then you know we got to go to Jason and go with up for grabs, and maybe you'll get a little bit of Lovecraft Country discussion. My name is Kenneth Davis, the host of the show, and before he becomes my co-host, uh, his name is Rob Bukovsky. <laughs> Ryan Bisky and Ryan Bisky one. Um, definitely always appreciate anybody that's some time to tune in and join us. Uh, hopefully, we can bring you a little bit of levity and a little bit of sports chatter uh, off top. And I, and this is off top. It's not a jovial off top. Um, I want to talk about um, the usual. And unfortunately, when I say the usual, I mean the Jacob Blake shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, you know, a lot of times when I first start to see when um, anything, when somebody of color, I, mean, I, won't even, I won't even say that, even though this is about people of color. When I see harm coming to people, I usually want to avert my attention for something. For, not to say I won't force myself to watch, um, but I, it's not things that I, I, I like. I wasn't a faces of death person. If anybody out there is old enough to remember that movie series, um, I don't like stuff like that. If anybody has sent me something that's uh, just terribly violent, I tell them, why are you sending me that, basically? Um, so, again, when it first started bubbling about the shooting in Kenosha, Wisconsin, usually my first reaction is, I have to go see this. It's not. Um, it may take me a day um, before I, I look because I know how hard that is, especially being a person of color. Um, if you haven't seen it, I'm sure most of us have. Uh, the, the full facts haven't come out, but that's not, I'll be honest, it's not really what's important unless that man was pointing a pistol, and I met me and Jacob Blake was pointing a pistol at the police officers. Uh, from what we've seen and gleaned from the video, uh, the police had him subdued. Uh, he got away. He walked around the car. He did not run. Uh, he walked around the car. He got in the car, and while he was getting in the car, a cop, while holding on to his T-shirt, fired at least seven to eight rounds into his back, uh, severing his spinal cord. They don't know if he's going to be permanently paralyzed. He is paralyzed. Uh, part of his colon, the small intestines had to be removed. He was shot in the stomach and in the arm. And I, I may be missing a place or two where, unfortunately, he took a bullet. Um, if you didn't see his parents talking today, it was hard. Our boy D, I, I retweeted a tweet of his, uh, mentioned that it was hard for him not to cry uh, during that. His, his father, man, you can see the pain. His father tried initially to um, play an even kill, and you could just see the anger. And I mean, as a father... I, listen, you don't even have to be a father. Let me. I, sometimes I, when we have our parents, um, we like as a father, as a human being, and anybody in your family that you cared about, you saw them get unloaded on. But as a father, you feel it's your job to protect your children. And um, man, I mean, and the weirdest part, and I hate to say it's weird, is that he's still alive. Because usually we never hear from uh, from uh, 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 Tamir Rice, from Trayvon Martin. Uh, Eric Garner, Mike Brown, uh, Breonna Taylor, um, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, and, and, and with George Floyd, we never hear their story. Like, we're actually going to get to hear his side of this. It's usually final, which is, it, it's weird that, like, we're going to get to hear, one, what was going on, but it doesn't matter because there's no reason to, un he didn't unload a clip, but he gave him half a clip, almost. And when we see that when, White people are being subdued. They can have a machete in their hand, and the cops won't shoot them, right? And, and, and all people of color is asking for is just do what you do over there. Like, I mean, sometimes the argument about race in this country is um, blinded by race in this country, um, especially a country built on liberty. You know what I'm saying? If you, you're sticking to the tenets of what this country was supposed to be built on, um, even if you don't like a group, you're supposed to want them to at least be as treated 
as decent and as well as you're treated because, and unfortunately it doesn't happen, but really if any group is being treated unjustly, one group is being treated unjustly is what I mean to say, any group can be treated unjustly, right? Um, but we don't seem to have that decency. You know, it's always a reason behind why it's okay, but why black life don't, doesn't matter. And what I mean is why black life isn't equal. You know, and we don't, we don't own up to that, that's an innate feeling in people. We want to act like they, that's not what that's not what they're like. No, no, no. They don't regard that life to the same standard as a life in a different shade. Because if they did, they would act the same way with that person. That let's let's even say if, if Jacob Blake was be acting irrational. We've seen too many white people act irrational, and they are taken into custody. It's no need to bring up Dylan Roof, but I mean he he he's the first one off the boat basically. We've, we've seen too many of uh, the guy that was in Denver during the Batman movie dressed up as the Joker that uh, shot those people. And like these guys are always for half the time, not always, are taken into custody because a person sees someone that looks like them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, it used to be an old saying, if a black person uh, did something and, 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 and turn yourself into the cops because if they catch you, you don't know what they may do to you, Right. And you don't see the same way when you look at a Dylan Roof where he could be taken to get fast food before he goes to jail. You know, like they, where, you don't see the same visceral anger towards someone that committed an atrocity compared to if it was a person of color that committed to him, he may not even made it to the jail. And I mean, that's really the key in any of this. And I, I, I would be more angry if this hadn't, if this wasn't so common, you know? And I, I think that's, prob- that's a problem in me. You know what I'm saying? Um, I need to, you know, I do need to do more. You know, I, I do. There, I, I don't know how just yet, but I, I'm clearly not doing enough in any small way that I can do something. Um, but um, I'm tired. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I hate to say that as a, um, a person of color. I'm, I'm tired. And that's it. Yeah, you know what? It's just becoming way too commonplace. Is you know somebody gets subdued by the cops and then they end up dead. And it's always like, again, what what it comes back to George Floyd. Like, what danger are you in as a police officer that you've got to unload on people? Like, what is going on that deadly force? And not saying force deadly force specifically is the goal and that's where it's like okay everything else is broken down we got to go and take someone down that you know are they really posing a threat to anybody in terms of that you have to start unloading on people and you know it it just seems like it's going to be such a long process to like really flush these things out and you know it sucks that we have to see it but maybe there is a positive because it, it just continues to unite all the people where we know that this is wrong. You know, you saw how many countless athletes come out and say like the lions, they canceled practice today. Yeah, you know, that, there's something bigger than football. That was their reasoning. There's Celtic no reason. Raptors, Celtic Raptors. Exactly. Thoughts about not playing that game uh, to highlight this situation. Uh, and I want you to continue. And you had, um, you had Hill. Uh, from uh, um, the, the Utah Jazz, George uh, come out and say that they shouldn't even be in a damn bubble because it's taking away attention from what's really going on out there in the world. But please, Brian, I didn't mean to cut you off continue. Yeah, you know, that's that's the big thing that, you know, personally I'm looking at is we got to keep this momentum of change going. We can't just stop. And this stretches with everything. You know, this election that's coming up, we got to make sure that it doesn't matter who the winner is. You need to start being accountable and start doing stuff for this country, for everybody, not based on a certain skin color. You know, and that's it, the I point. think it matters, brother. I think it, oh, it to does. Get, but to get but that, I'm to talking get that, on a theoretical level. I, you're, I get you. I get you. We need to, as a people of this country, we need to make sure that that office and all these offices get back to that level. We got to start holding people accountable. And that's why if we don't, if we start forgetting of these examples or just let it go under the carpet, like we've done too much in our past, Mm -hmm. that's how it's just going to continue on this cycle. And we're just going to keep saying, when is, when are we actually going to take the control of this situation? When are we actually going to do something? It's called revolution, brother. Yeah. Hey, we might need it. Every, 
All these, uh, I mean, look at history. Every, every empire crumbles. Right. I mean, you gotta, you can't just expect a few individuals or a certain section of people to get everything. And then the rest to just sit there in awe and be like, oh, we should be so happy to get just a little of anything. I mean, that's not how it works. And that's not at all what we talk about is the American dream or any of that stuff when we talk about America specifically. And I think um, along what you were saying, like I hate to say it, black people are used to, we're conditioned to move in this environment, all right, to be treated unfairly, but still go about our day. Um, So I don't even think we're really asking for, I mean, yes, we're asking for the full American dream, but to be honest, we're just asking for the people that we pay taxes for not to shoot us. Right? Sure. Like that, that's, that's, the, that's, that's even more simpler than anything. I, I mean, just stop, stop going from, oh, you're not listening, pop. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's, there's so much, way too much in between there to go to pop. And pop is, is so easy for someone to necessarily just, that's where I'm headed, right? And especially when it's someone that doesn't look like you and in your heart of hearts, you don't think that their life is as valuable as someone who looks like you. Because if they did, they wouldn't do it. And if they, if, if they did, uh, they wouldn't let white men all the time uh, sit there and have a weapon or a knife and sit there and wave it about and hover around them in a, in a fashion where if it was a brother, the first reaction is, oh, okay. It, it, it'd be like, um, oh, man. What was the young gentleman that died? Got shot on Pulaski. Um, I, I'm sorry, I'm blanking out on the young man's name. Um, here in Chicago, um, the young gentleman who the cop just jumped out of the cruiser, and he had the young gentleman had a knife. He was acting erratic, and the cop just, the cop was like, "I got this," and just jumped out and shot him. And uh, it, it it's just those. It's just it's tiring, man. And again. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of it always like being on the wanted list. And I don't mean it for something that I did, but because of the way that I look. Well, I mean, when you say that in between from, you know, hands up to pop, like when did we get to the point where pop became reasonable as an answer? Like I remember growing up watching movies like, the cops in the movies pop was supposed to be the last thing that they ever do. Like we're trying to do whatever else we can before we get to that level. And then when you grow up, you almost kind of feel stupid. Cause it's like, man, cops, I mean, they'll just pop whenever they feel like it. I and mean, it was, whatever they say that their life or any kind of mm-hmm. something I feel, is. I'm in danger. I'm right. in danger. Right. I'm in danger. That, that means I can totally kill. Acceptable. Yeah, dude. And that was Laquan McDonald. Unfortunately, I, 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 I missed on Oh yeah, man! Like, if you too, if you that scared, man, take it off. Yeah. If you what are you scared, doing? If that scared, man, take it off. If your first year, if, if, if now that y'all out here like hunters, I mean, we can go back to the history of the police, though. All right. Oh yeah. So, why there was a police initially, and why some of those actions still reflect their inception as far as their treatment of black people. Um, but yeah, that that's my off the top, man. Is that um, it's tiring, and um, I'm sorry, I I can't bring anything more to it um, to help people feel better. Not to say that that's my job or some type of uh, insight into how to go about change, because um, that just it's just I mean, and his kids, I just, and, and I mean, dude, seven shots, and his father said eight. Savage? I mean, and the worst part, as soon as you knew they shot him in the back, my first thought was, well, if he's alive, he's paralyzed, right? Like, sure. Like, like, you we, would think that automatically. Yeah, automatically. Like, seven times, I'll be, and you missed the spine everywhere. Like, it's just like, what? So, uh, this is what I can't get. So, after he didn't listen to you and got in the car, there was no still a chance, there was no chance of him still living, basically, in this cop's mind. He's getting in the car. Now, let's look, let's look at the opposite. The car's, the cop is afraid, perhaps, um, perhaps, that he's going for a gun. All right? That's what the cop's going to say. That's, that's a reasonable explanation. As far, well, uh, 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 that's, a, that's a reasonable thought, right? Uh-huh. 
But just because he's going in his car, you said, I have to kill him. You didn't say, man, I got I to gotta still get him. You didn't, and you could die from getting shot any place. Like when we talked about Megan Scott, you getting shot in the foot this past weekend. Um, but I could say you couldn't shoot him in the shoulder. He could, something he could have ricocheted, but you could have shot him if, if you had to shoot him, quote unquote. You could have shot him. One, a taser should have been used, but you could, you could have shot him and not tried to murder him. And that cop was trying to kill that man, unfortunately. And it's just, and like, when are police unions going to own up to this? Like, let's put it like this. Even if this cop isn't one of the, isn't a Chauvin in Minnesota, Officer Chauvin uh, that killed George Floyd. Even if he's not to that degree, and I'm, I'm, I'm for some reason giving this pass, it's, uh, it's not just in giving it to him. The training is out of sync. Like, you're, you're, not, you're not training these men. To, 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 you're not training them properly to know, all right, this is how we uh, interact with all citizens. Or in particular, this is how you interact with citizens of color. Your, 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 your first recourse is not to shoot them. If they don't have a weapon, and even that, depending on the weapon, is my example of uh, uh, white people with knives and blades and stuff like that who they, never, they don't get shot, Right. You don't have to kill them, basically. There's the, the training is, is out of whack. But again, it, go, it goes back to why they're there. But these police unions never own up to, you know what? That's a bad cop, right? It's all blind, NRA, no, no, no. You guys are wrong. You guys are picking on us. And they, they listen, they're too powerful and they're too grown. And it's nothing worse than a grown man whining about being picked on, especially when he's in a position of power. Yeah, and, you know, the thing that I come up with is, like, you have this person in control. You're in control of the situation. They get out, and now you're panicking. Now you're freaking out. Like, like you just said, go back to the training. Like, you got to be in control at all times. And if something breaks down, you don't just start shooting somebody. Mm -hmm. I mean, you got to figure it out. And then you have, I don't know, you would think countless uh, number of techniques you could try to do, like you said. Where's the taser? Is that even being used? Is that even an option? You think like if you're that worried that they're getting a weapon, show me your hands. Show me your hands. We don't see any of that kind of stuff. It just it starts unloading the gun, and it just I don't know. It, there's just no way you could be trained like this in my mind. Like are cops really this poorly trained out here that it's like you know it, shit starts breaking down, start shooting. Yeah, that's that is the training for a certain person. All right. When those people, that's how, you know, another cop tells this younger cop, you know, you see one of those people reaching for something, you shoot them. Right. See one of them, you shoot them. It was a young gentleman like 13 years ago. And I remember he was at a gate. He was a teenager. You can tell he was one of those. He was enjoying his day. Right. Because uh, he you could just feel his energy. A cop pulls him over. Uh, I think the cop had his gun out. Maybe not. He didn't have his gun out yet. Uh, the kid's just like, yeah, okay, okay, okay. The cop tells him to get get his ID. The kid dives into the car to get his ID, and the cop unloads on him. The kid's like, why'd you shoot me? The cop, uh, 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 the kid, yeah, the kid's like, why'd you shoot me? Uh, or maybe the cop asked what he was doing. He said, I was trying to get my ID. The kid didn't have a weapon. He was going in the car to get his ID. Unfortunately, and I hate to say this, most of us were trained as kids not to dive back into that car. And I'm not blaming that kid. I'm not blaming his parents. I'm just stating the reality of how black people or people of color are raised to know. And this is from, and I have to say this on the show before, from teachers. This isn't just your parents. This is from teachers telling you in grade school, you know what? The cops can do this to you. And we used to have officer friendly come in there. It wasn't, I'm not saying it was anti-cop, but it was just as a person of color, particularly a black person, black male, you need to know this, all right? And that's the reality. And, and everyone, and it just lets you know how, how, that, that how racism persists in a systematic, in a systemic, they're fine with it. They actually feel like that's good. Y'all should feel like that. And that's just the truth. Because if they didn't, it wouldn't be taking place. All right. Dear, I mean, how about to say Dan Show? Davis Show, coming back on the other side of this break, our boy Darnell Mayberry is going to join us to talk about the Bulls. We're going to switch it to the little sports. I know this was uh, heavy. Uh, for some of you, but we definitely want to talk on it. Um, so we did. So coming back down there, maybe uh, from the athletic shots in your Bulls riders, so we can talk some Bulls, some artillery, Carnesovas, maybe a little draft pick, draft pick talk. Davis the show. Stop! 
down by Davis. Puts it up as he goes crashing into the stands. All right, the Davis Show. Our first guest on the Davis Show. All right. Pulled this one out. Ryan hit me. We talked about it. And Ryan was like, yeah, I think we should get Darnell. I was like, cool. Then he was like, I got Darnell. I was like, hey, look at you being proactive. But uh, lucky enough, we have the senior Bulls writer from the Athletic Show, the one and the only Darnell Mayberry. Uh, man, it's funny because, again, this is uh, being a, a new show in a way. I'm still keeping the legacy that DNI created. Uh, man, I can remember, and I didn't even think I was going to go here, I think the first time we talked to you was when you first came from OKC, if I'm correct. Yeah. Yeah, that, and that dude, that had to be like five years ago, maybe four or five years ago. Um, one thing I can say uh, real quick, I'm happy to see you on all platforms in Chicago. Whenever I hear you on all the platforms, it, it, it brightens up my day when I hear you on those major platforms, man, to see how, you know, the fruit comes for your labor. So congratulations to you is how I want to kick off this this whole interview. But anyway, I got follow him at Donnell Mayberry. Um, I used to met, I used to actually butcher his name. All right. I'm not going to do it because I'm going to mess up. It's going to be stuck in my head. So I'm not going to say what I used to say. But look, real quick, one thing Ryan said before you joined us was mm-hmm. the fact that Giannis just won Defensive Player of the Year. And my first reaction was, are they going to jip him out of the MVP? So, one, do you think he should have got Defensive Players or another player that you think deserved it more than Giannis? And do you still believe he's going to win the MVP? He's going to pull a Jordan Olajuwon type situation uh, when it comes to getting a defensive player and an MVP. I don't necessarily remember if they got it in the same year. Yeah, I think he will win it. I think he's deserving of, of defensive player of the year. And I also think he will win MVP. You know, one of our writers um, out on the West Coast was doing something. He was collecting some information from, from various writers and voters. And I no longer vote. I just I, I'm against it uh, on principle. But um, why? Why? Well, you can't do that. Why? You, why? You don't, why do you not longer vote? I'm just, there's a, there's a lot that's attached to voting, and mm-hmm. you know you, you're you're basically determining whether or not players get incentives yeah. in their contracts. And I just feel like as a reporter, as a journalist, uh, we're supposed to be neutral observers and unbiased, and that sort of thing. We shouldn't be determining whether guys get multi million dollar bonuses in their contracts if they're eligible for. Um, you know, certain incentives. So I just disagree with that. Hmm. Do you do you believe that some, like kind of you used to hear this about uh, Rice who used to play for the Red Sox and other uh, players being held out of the Hall of Fame because they maybe had acrimony with the reporters. Is that, a, is that another part of why you don't like it? Because some reporters may misuse that power to stop perhaps a player from getting something because they don't have a good relationship with that player? I mean, there's no easy answer. Let me say that. I don't have the answer for, for how to best vote for these postseason awards. But if you just look at the voting, you can see where the biases reveal themselves. Uh, you know, where guys in local markets are going to vote for the guy that they have to work with every day. And and I just – I will never be a pawn uh, in my coverage. I will never, you know, uh, allow my vote to go to someone because I'm around them every day. It's just, that's just not me. It's not kind of, it's not what kind of person I am. It's not what kind of reporter I am. Uh, and, and I just, I think there's a lot of that that goes on in journalism and in the media. So, um, you know, I, I just won't be a part of it. So look, coming here to Chicago, we now know we have our tourist current service and Mark easily running our organization. I want to talk about them. And then a little bit later, I definitely want to get into some, some of the coaching candidates. What we wrote, you wrote, a terrific article the other day for The Athletic about the coaching candidates. I always enjoy reading your articles because I'm learning something. So I want you to further, further educate me. Uh, when it comes to our tourist Cardinals service, and these are just some of the questions that go on in my head. I look at Denver, and there's a lot of things with Denver that I like. I, I, I definitely like how they drafted, um, and I definitely it seems like they're good with player development, right? Um, but one thing that sticks out to me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't, I don't know if I view them as having a, a, a cultural narrative in a way. Like, I, I mean, I guess we could say winning is a culture. But mm-hmm. when we're talking about like a, a Miami, uh, you know, it's like they, they like, yeah, they kind of, they waned in years. Uh, when, you know what I'm saying? Where it, it wasn't that, that, that dogmatic mentality, but it's kind of gotten back to where Miami basketball is. And you can say the same about someone like the San Antonio Spurs. So when I'm looking at our tourists coming over here, my first thought is, about Masai Ujiri was there before, and that wasn't like a terrible Denver team. You know, that was they had the players from the, uh, the Mellow trade. Uh, basically, it's Denver. We gonna run you. It's Mount High, like Alice English was out here playing. Do you believe? And it's not a knock on him, but he he can't he come he came from an organization that he he can 
he has the ability to be able to change cultures is the question that I'm asking you. Because when you're coming into the Bulls, they've been losing forever. And all their players, outside of if they just came from college, have been basically used to, to losing. How, how can he change that narrative? Or, it, it, or is it just winning is the answer to, to all the, the problems? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you added that last part about the Bulls' recent history because there's only one way to go, and that's mm-hmm. up. You know, uh, and, and that's not to say that the job's going to be easy for our tourists, but he's going to come in and and automatically have a certain level of credibility because of where he's been. He was in, with the Houston Rockets before the Denver Nuggets. He was with the league office before the Houston Rockets. So he's got credibility from where he's been and what he's done in this league. Uh, here stateside and abroad, working with Basketball Without Borders, uh, trying to extend the game globally and all the work that he's done uh, with, with those initiatives. So I think he's going he's gonna to come in and, and demand, command instant cred- credibility uh, from the jump. And then also, I think, just from my dealings with him so far, the man is incredibly professional. Uh, you can see why he's well-respected. You can see why so many around the league uh, hold him in such high esteem. Uh, he just goes about his business in a very professional way, and I think that's going to trickle down uh, from the front office on down to the coaching staff whenever he gets the new coaching staff in here and into the players. Now, listen, uh, you, you just mentioned as far as the limited amount of time that you had with him. On top of that, we've been in COVID formation, so it's not like you can really be around the team and the facilities like you, you have been in the past. But what, if any, are some of the differences that you've noticed from the old regime to this regime? Uh, and what, if any, is refreshing from the old regime to this regime as far as Gar Foreman and John Paxton and now with Arturis Karnasovas and Mark Easley? Well, they, the, the one thing that I think is going to be the most important is they, they want to make it a player's first franchise. They want to really be in tune to what the players are feeling, what they're saying behind closed doors, you know, how they're truly feeling, not just, mm-hmm. not just uh, what they say to us in the media, but what they really feel. Um, and they want to be in tune to that. They want to make decisions uh, not solely based on that, but with that in mind for sure. Uh, and I think that's what we're going to see going forward. But also um, just the fact that, you know, and I know this for a fact that these guys aren't coming in here worrying about the narrative. You know, with a lot of the situations with Gar Foreman and John Paxson and, and that previous regime, regime, a lot of it was worrying about the narrative and majoring on the minor. Uh, and I don't think that these guys are going to come in here and worry about uh, who's saying what or what the fan base thinks or what the fan base thinks they should do. We saw that with Jim Boylan. Everyone said, okay, our tourist corner shows has been here for four, four months now. Why is Jim Boylan still on the job? I wrote that. Why is Jim Boylan still head coach of the Bulls? Uh, and then on the last day of the, the late end of the regular season, he makes a, a seemingly a no-brainer move and fires Jim Boylan when the calendar said this is when these things normally happen. So there's a rhyme and a reason already with what we've seen from this new regime, and I think we're going to see that more going forward. Look, when you talk about the players being honest and them not maybe being forthcoming with you as far as the media, what were some of the things that were percolating that some of us fans don't even know about as as problems that the players had with the old regime? You know, I don't know if it was so much with with management um, as it it was with the coaching staff, uh, Mm -hmm. starting with Jim Boyle. I mean, I I think they could all see that top to bottom, things weren't being well um, run well. Uh, but these guys all went up out and, and give them credit. They might not have always played well, but they generally played hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they they went out there and played with pride and tried to do their jobs as professionals, even if the results didn't always back it up. Um, and I think that was sort of their mindset. But they knew top down it wasn't, you know, it wasn't run in the best way. Uh, and a lot of things could have been better. But I think their issues were more um, – just the day-to-day operation on, on the court, not in okay. the front office. Look, speaking of Jim Boylan, I want to get back to our truth, but speaking of Jim Boylan, for us now on the inside or around him daily, uh, what was one of the most more mind-blowing, I want to say interactions with you, but mind-blowing statements or things that you saw Jim Boylan do uh, that just was, mind, it was just numbing to like, I can't believe this cat just did this right here. I mean, how much time we got? <laughs> we got time, brother. We got time. I got. Is it, how much time do you have? Is the question. I guess it, it, it was a lot, man. I mean, you got to think about the the wholesale substitutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, his first year, I think it was his third. It was his third 
game as head coach uh, where he just subbed out all five players against the Celtics and they end up losing by 56 points at home. Mm. That's hard to do. Uh, <laughs> and, and so that was one of them. And not only did he did it once, but he also did it twice. He did it in the start of the uh, second half, too. So uh, he did that. Pulling Zach Levine against Miami early in, uh, in this past season, um, that, was, that was just on call for singling out your best player, your, your best scorer. Um, and then the 35 assists comment, saying he wanted to average 35 assists. Uh, and I was the one who called him on that in a post game because he had said it after two two games. And I, after that second game, I'm, I'm like, wait a minute now, Jim. I got to. You want to average 35 assists? Not like occasionally get 35 oh. assists. <laughs> average 35 assists. So I'm just like, okay, there, there's a lot, but I think those three will probably be in my top three. And look, just to, to throw a bouquet as a person – uh, how'd you feel about him as a person? Just because we ain't got just down the dude all all the damn time. He's a human being too. How was he as an individual? Um, he he did some things that were beneficial to me. Mm-hmm. He opened his door for me a few times. I had a Q and A, a two part Q and A with him his first season. You know, shortly after he took over, uh, I think that was in January or February of two thousand nineteen. Um, and so I was grateful for him for that. Um, you know, everyone, it, in, it ended up being, you know, a national punchline. But the punch clock, you know, that was, that was a detail that I uncovered in my reporting. He was gracious enough to share that with me uh, with, on a different occasion uh, for a story that I wrote at the start of this season in October of 2019. So, um, you know, he opened his doors, rolled out the red carpet to me a couple of times, and I'm forever appreciative of that. Um, and, and when you talk to him, it was always sort of like talking to an old friend. He knew how to turn on the charm and, and butter you up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he was one of those. But uh, little grease, little grease on you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, we had our run ins. We had our moments. And, and most of the time you do on a job like this. But uh, the bottom line, man, is he just wasn't what they needed on the court. And, and that was the most important thing. Look, do you think, because now what we heard before was that there, teams wanted to talk to him. The Bulls basically held on to him because they thought it was a chance that Fred Hoberg was going to be released. Uh, what, what do you think his options are? Of course, it's the NBA. You can always get assistant coaching options. But as far as being a head coach, we, I know this is a silly question. We can basically say that's over, correct? Yeah, I think he's done being a head coach. Uh, yeah. The experience that he had in Utah, uh, at the University of Utah, and then also here with the Bulls as a head coach, uh, I just think his track record now, <laughs> you got to know some people in some high places to get another opportunity after failing miserably like he did in Utah and here with the Bulls. So I think he will be an assistant coach again, but I don't think he's ever going to get another NBA head job. Maybe a, a college head coaching job again, mm-hmm. but I don't think – I don't see it happening at the NBA level. Now, real quick, back to Arturis and Mark. Um, one thing, I think you kind of answered it because you said that they don't really care about what the narrative is. And that work. One thing, being a, a fan of Jerry Reinsdorf's teams, they love to control the narrative, as you've mentioned a second ago. You know, like they, it, they can't just have it be where, no, it's, it's on us. Um, with these two cat, cats, one thing I want, I, I thought about you too. I want to ask you this. Now, you already have talent on this team. But one of the things that's good about these uh, two individuals are when it comes to especially our current service is drafting. Now, should the Bulls go into a situation where it's like, you know what, this is a, a total clean slate. When I mean clean slate, I mean like, yeah, we've been losing, but we can't put that on these two individuals and now say you have to win now. Should they, like, should they be given or will they be given uh, the, the ability to, if it, if it takes three years before they can get into the playoff, that's okay. Or is the button ready to go because the Bulls have been so bad for so long right now? I would say somewhere in the middle. Um, you know, I, I see this team as being a playoff team maybe in the next two years. If it takes three, you know, I, I think that, that says that's kind of telling in and of itself. Um, but they've got talent, and that's why, that's why this job is an appealing job. You know, the, the, the cupboard is not bare. you got Zach Levine and Larry Marketing. you got Kobe White and Wendell Carter Jr. You even got Otto Porter Jr., even though he, he's been limited. You know, he's one of the elite shooters in this league, uh, and he can give you a little defense too. So, um, And he's got experience. So they've got some talent on this team uh, that they can, they can work around. And now having a top five pick in this year's draft, uh, you're going to bring in your hand-picked head coach 
Um, you're going to have cap space next summer, not this offseason, but the next offseason. So they've got, they've got uh, a canvas from which to work. And I think if it takes them three years, then that tells me that they're going to be headed for a massive teardown before trying to build this thing up. And I don't anticipate that. I do know that they like some pieces on this team. They're going to try to work with what they have and, and, and start with what they were given and not just tear it all down first. David Show, lucky enough to have Donnell Mayberry on with me right now, Bulls senior writer for the Athletic Chicago. Uh, look, you have a terrific article about the coaching candidates that are that are out there right now. And I'd be remiss if not to mention Adrian Griffin uh, to lead off with him. Uh, we all know the, the accusation that was made by his ex-wife. Uh, we, I don't need to go into detail about that. Uh, but one of the things that I was thinking to you in your article was this. If the Bulls do their due diligence and it's basically they can't find any truth to that, would you, if you were in that position, hire him or would you be fearful of the fact that, you know what, you never know and that could be some blowback and you're sitting there holding the bag because someone could say, well, you did kind of hear those, those accusations before you hired him? I'd be sure that I did my homework. I know that. I mean, all of my T's would have to be crossed and my I's would have to be dotted before offering him a contract. Um, and you, as you know, these are, these are complex situations. An accusation doesn't make uh, it true, a claim mm-hmm. true. Uh, and, and as we know, there are always three sides to the story. Right. So, uh, you know, we've heard her side. We've heard him come out and deny it. And whoever wants to hire Adrian Griffin at some point, whether that's this summer or next offseason or whenever there's a next opportunity to become a head coach, they're going to have to make sure that they do their homework. Um, if it was me, you know, I would, I would just do my due diligence and have to feel very comfortable about the decision I'm making, because if you're wrong, or if there's something that you missed in the process, you're going to bring your franchise into a bad light and that's going to be a bad look. So I don't think the Bulls can afford that. Uh, the NBA can't afford that. And, Mm. and, um, you know, it's just, it's just a, a, a difficult situation, but you know, these guys, uh, the NBA and, and these, these these teams, they do their homework for the most part and, and try to make these decisions with care and handle them uh, with sensitivity. So uh, if the Bulls still do have them on the radar, I do believe that they'll do their homework. One thing that a source told you was that they didn't understand why he basically was leading the pack in coaching candidates and coaching uh, vacancies as far as being a top candidate. Uh, listen, Checking the temperature, was that just that person? Or are there more people around the league that say that they don't understand why Agent Griffin is kind of, you could say, the hottest name as far as assistant coach getting that first head coaching job? Yeah, it was it was surprising because, you know, that's one of the few um, negative critiques that I've heard on Adrian Griffin. Um, mm-hmm. You know, most people have, have said he's long been deserving of this opportunity. Uh, a lot of people have talked about his character uh, and, and how he's been a model citizen, uh, not just a model NBA representative, but a model citizen uh, throughout his, his time in the league, even as a player. So, um, you know, it was it was a little surprising, but I do know that there are some people who who, who feel like maybe Adrian Griffin um, is is a, a, a hot candidate, but they don't see the why behind that. Uh, and that, and I think that's what this one person was trying to, to get across, not saying that he was a bad candidate, but just in his eyes or her, his eyes, um, they didn't see the why. Look, you mentioned Wes Unsell Jr. who, listen, until about two weeks ago, I have to be honest, I don't know if I knew that much about Wes Unsell Jr. Yeah. We all, this was before our time, love his father. Uh, I don't know how well of an outlet's passer Wes Unsell Jr. is compared to the old man. <laughs> but, like, uh, you have him. Uh, you have uh, Ime Udoka, uh, of course, uh, with Philadelphia, who had a terrible year, but a, a, a great Popovich guy. Uh, and then you have, for instance, Kenny Atkinson, Kenny Atkinson the former head coach of the Nets, uh, who – it was some heat in this article for Kenny Atkinson, man. It was like, first I was leaning towards him. Uh, but then when you – like, when people kind of said he was simple when it comes to his coaching, it's like, no! But yeah. those out of the out of the candidates that you listed, which one do you think best will probably get the job and best fits the job as far as the Chicago Bulls? You know, I'm I'm keeping my I'm keeping one eye on this Utah Denver game as we speak because if Denver loses, they're going home, and then I think Wes Unsell Jr. could have a, a legitimate shot uh-huh. at this at this job here in Chicago because you have to look at the connection he has with Arturis Konnachovas. 
Um, you have to look at some of the things that were said about him in that article, how prepared he is, how no-nonsense he is, ego-free he is. Uh, he's just about his business. He, he appreciates, he understands and appreciates the value, the, um, the value of solidarity and, and, and collaboration. Uh, and that's all that we've heard with Mark Eversley and Arturo's Conchovis is that they want to be in sync. They want to be aligned. Uh, and coming from that Denver Nuggets program, that's all they preached. That's what their front office and coaching staff was. They were in lockstep, even with the ownership. So uh, to have someone like that who already understands your philosophy and your, your way of doing things, I think that'll be uh, pretty hard for our tourists to pass up. If it's me, just the way I'm seeing it, reading tea leaves, I'm looking at Wes Unsell Jr. as probably mm. the front runner because of all of those things. So we're going with the outlet pass. Oh, I got you, brother. <laughs> Kenneth Davis, right here with Donnell Merberry from the Athletic Shot. Look, this is the thing, again, why I appreciate your writing. And you talk about collaboration. You specifically talked about relationships, and you talked about coaches or assistant coaches in particular being overly player-friendly and how no one wants to be viewed like that because you can end up being the snake, kind of like an old uh, Mike Shanahan uh, situation when, when like Reeves was the coach of Denver. He was like, you didn't tell me John Elway hated me like that. Uh, look, are there any, is there any specific situations you can point to of a coach, assistant coach, where he was too close with the players and it ended up snaking his career because he was too player friendly and he wasn't collaborative with the head coach? No, I've heard stories, but you know, that's all hearsay. So yeah. I, I won't get into it, but, um, but but I've been told that it happens, uh, mm -hmm. and it happens regularly. And, and that's something that coaches are always um, mindful and cognizant of because they don't want that person on their staff. I mean, uh, a, a famous case happened out with Mark Jackson in Golden State, you know, where he felt like he had some people on staff that, that weren't loyal to him and, you know, uh, depending on who you believe, there were there were a lot of things that were going on behind the scenes out there. But uh, there have been some famous cases where some staffs have, have just not been on the same page, and that's what every head coach tries to avoid. Well, the Athletic picked out the, the draft picks, and of course I, I believe probably everyone in their market got to pick the player and, and fear for Chicago at number four. And correct me, you put you picked Danae Appy? Abadija? Am I pronouncing that correctly? It's close enough. Yeah. I know, I know. It'd be like just Luca, Luca. So let's, <laughs> this is the thing, too. Um, I can't even remember. It was, it was before Daniel Gallinari. I can't remember the European player, the Knicks draft, like at number one about 12 or 13 years ago. And the reason they drafted him was really because this is when Dirk first started getting hot, right? And again, I don't want to be the guy that misses out on Luca twice, right? Because Luca should have won one, and if I had that job, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have done it, right? I would have totally messed up, and I'll, I'll own that because he, he's one of my favorite players in the NBA, right? Uh, for the last two seasons. So tell me about Denis or Denai. Uh, correct me, please, uh, and, and everyone that is watching us uh, about this type of player. And is this Luca influence? I guess is what I'm trying to get to because you don't want to be the guy that misses out on the next one. No, I don't. I don't think is any. I, he, listen, Danny and Luca don't belong in the same breath. All right, I, you know that as a Luca. I know player. that. I know that. I know there's, that. There's not too many guys, even in the NBA now, who belong in his category. So uh, that's how that's how cold he is. But uh, no, this is a guy who's six nine. You know. Combo forward, he can he can he has some versatility. Not a great shooter right now, but an incredible passer. He's got great court vision, can see the floor, um, you know. And I think he, you know, with the premium on wings right now, Arturis has come out and said that they're not going to draft for need at four. He feels like you got to take the best talent available. And, and this guy, um, I just saw something today where he he's played the most minutes uh, of anyone in the draft. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, first round. Uh, picks, perhaps, you know, maybe not, you know, four, three, four-year college guys, but mm -hmm. uh, of, the, of the likely first-round picks, he's played more minutes than anyone uh, overseas. So it's just like this guy's got experience. He's got savvy and and maturity on the court in terms of seeing the game that everyone is looking for right now. And if he can work on his defense and he can work on his shooting, then you've got a prospect. Now, the question is whether or not this guy is uh, a top-five caliber player. 
Um, now, we all know that you're drafting on potential, and if he's got that potential, I can definitely see him going to the Bulls at four. Uh, but it just all depends on how much they feel like he can grow and improve over the course of the next four or five years. Two more questions. One national, does Pop go – does Pop leave the Spurs and either go to the Nets or Sixers, in your opinion? Man, no, Pop's not leaving. Now, <laughs> now that I done said that, he's go, he goes, you can play this back and make it crazy. But I just, I just don't see Pop leaving. Uh, you know, you mentioned my Thunder uh, history. When, when they got rid of Scott Brooks um, after the 2015 season, I want to say, um, I, I actually thought that Sam Presti was going to make a run at Greg Popovich, and I thought mm-hmm. Pop might want to listen to that because you would have still had Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook. Um, now, he also had Sam Presti. Uh, Sam Marks. From the, from the San, San Antonio Spurs. You got Sean Marks from the San Antonio Spurs organization. So, uh, you know, never say never, but I just don't see him leaving that San Antonio organization because he's so embedded there and because, look, this guy might have uh, ownership stake someday in that franchise if he doesn't already. So mm-hmm. uh, I, just, I just feel like he's incredibly embedded there. And at this stage in his life, I can't see him leaving. And then how have you been moving in this COVID environment, bro? Since I haven't talked to you, what have been your ups and your downs? All right, how's listen? Are you prepared? Because you 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 do have a you have a kid or you have children. Six-year-old daughter. Yep. Yeah. So how how are you preparing for remote learning? Because I'm like learning started Friday. Oh. Today was the second day or third day of remote learning, and uh, you know it's it's a struggle. But you know the schools are trying to do what they can, and you know I just applaud all of the teachers and the administrators who have tried their best to try to figure out a a difficult situation. Um, But the kids are going to be okay, man. Just on a personal note, it's like, it's not the, as a parent, it's not the school's job to raise our children. Correct. No, we, we as parents have to raise our children and I understand everyone's situation is different. You know, I'm blessed to be able to work from home generally. Not everyone has that reality. Um, You know, there's a lot of people who who have different needs. So, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not ignorant to that fact. But at the same time, you know, we have to put the health and safety of our children first. And if we're not, then what are we doing as parents? Listen, as you say, it's on us. And I take that, like, one thing I'm very serious about is raising my kids. Because, I, I mean, as you should be. But it's like, no, you take, that's job number one. Like, and people get mad at me. I'm like, my first job is to protect my kids. I don't care if you like me. That's my first job. You can be mad at me. But if I, don't, if I think something isn't just right, because if something bad happens, it's going to be on me. That's kind of how my father raised me. I could, say, I could give you a letter. And be like, could you put this in the mailbox for me? And you may have not put it in there. My father would have been like, you should have put it in the mailbox. That's kind of how I was raised. But the thing is, this is the thing. So now I'm trying to figure out with my my three-term four-year-old, because usually I'm the person that does her remote learning. And like you said, you got a six-year-old, man. So you almost, and you you probably in a way where you could sit her at times there by herself. Man, dude, I'm trying to figure out, especially now when they're going to go to probably three to three hours. I saw late. I said, wait, how many hours? Because it was one, right? And I'm like, okay, I got you, whatever. And they go to three hours. I'm like, how am I going to fully in work? As you said, lucky enough to work from home. And But now I'm trying to try to do it. But definitely I'm going to make it work. And I'm actually happy. I mean, I wish I could have went on vacation, took the family on vacation this year. Now, some people have. I just haven't been willing to risk it. So those are the things that I don't like. I mean, it's that's that's nothing. It's minuscule. Uh, those are the things I don't like. But I kind of, in a way, like my family being together. Mm. It's like it's one thing that we we said. It's like man, good thing we like each other. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, oof. but that's it, man. I, I had to go on my COVID rant. Uh, definitely, Darnell. Thank you for being the first guest on the Davis Show. I look forward to man. talking to you down the line, brother. Please stay safe. Keep your family safe, man, and good luck. All right. Thank you for having me, man. Appreciate it. No doubt. Davis, the show. It's time for our executive producer, Ryan Beesky, Booker Besky, bearded one, uh, to do his segment, which is known It's Up for Grabs. Let me throw, let me throw uh, a quick up for grabs for you because I don't want to set up too much time setting up because it was a horrible weekend for Cubs fans, but Chicago baseball, live and strong, 18 and 10 Cubs, 17 and 12 White Sox. Are we ready for the Red Line series at the end of October? Where are we at with 
Chicago baseball in the playoffs. Listen, maybe Bears game. Maybe Bears games may be the only game. Even though I've I've been around some some Blackhawks uh, game exits, and I was like, these guys are drunk. But, man, a red line rivalry would have people fighting on the red line. (laughs) And I'm not talking about people that look like me. Like, people would be so liquored up and ready to go. Um, Not yet. Um, he just he, said, oh, real quick. Are they hmm? just riding the red line during? COVID? Oh yeah, they they're not allowed they in the stadium. Riding the red line. Oh, because listen, I'll tell you this: if both those teams made it to the World Series, people are going to stand outside. Like people, oh, yeah, yeah. People, listen. The, the Lori Lightfoot is going to have to board, cut off Sheffield Waveland. You know, yeah. Shields, uh, the 35th Street, they're going to have to, they will have to cut all of that off because people will just stand outside listening to what's taking place inside of there if both of these teams, let alone if one of them was in there, they couldn't get into to the, to the uh, stadium. So, uh, yeah, no, nah, dude. But uh, listen, uh, coming into the, the Cubs, uh, White Sox Crosstown series, I think Sox fans like, man, can we get one? Like, it'll be, and to sit there that first Friday night, man, it was like, whoa. Right? Whoa! Um, it was nice. It was sweet. Um, that bombardment that took place, uh, watching Keiko come out there and uh, our new leader right now when it comes to the pitching staff, uh, set the tone. Uh, you sat there and, you, yeah, listen. <sighs> you guys should have took it to Ronaldo Lopez, man. That was your chance, him Gio's Gonzalez. Right? Like, that, that, was your, that was your chance right there. And to think that Dylan Cease was supposed to go, I believe, initially in game two. Uh, a good thing that he went up against you and had the game that he had because if we would have had Ronaldo Lopez and Gio, you guys probably would have kicked that butt in that last game that you Darvish pitched uh, basically at gym. Uh, so, yeah, it's good uh, to see that. And I know some Sox team players have been like, well, it wasn't a measuring stick. Yes, it was a measuring stick. You hadn't played a quality team like the Cubs, alone a team that with the veteran leadership and the experience uh, like the Cubs, who also was one of the hottest teams in baseball about a week and a half ago, right? And you, pitching really well. Exactly. You, seeing your beautiful lineup against uh, some good starting pitching. Yeah, so it was um, it was nice. It, it was nice to see. Um, it would have been nice to see uh, them um, get some situations. Uh, here we go. Gluttonous Davis. You're right. It would have been nice. <laughs> Gluttonous Davis. <laughs> More food, please. That's a mortal sin there, fella. (laughs) (laughs) It it bees like that sometimes. But no, it would have still been nice to see some situational hitting on Sunday. Um, And it's one of the things in discussion when I'm on Shine and Maya that Shine always uh, talks about as far as like, you know, getting it going on those bases. Um, It would have been like, you're going to, you can't live off of the long ball all the time. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? You're going to like, and you got guys who can get on base and be disruptive. All right. So it's time to start. Let's, let's, let's get it going so that when you're in a playoff game against an ace that, and you're not going to get six, seven, eight runs and all you're going to get is maybe two or three that you get one because you know, a, a, a guy sat there and, and stole second and he would have been on, uh, he would have been on uh, first uh, and then when the next guy comes up, that guy now that he's on second in scoring position is able to score. What's well, one of the, the speedsters that I'm referring to is as far as uh, Tim Anderson, a uh, Yoan Mankata, or Lewis Robert. Um, also, um, Yo, Yomer Sanchez has returned to the organization. Uh, our former uh, Gold Glove second baseman is it got a minor league deal, so he will be uh, back up. Yomer time is back. You know he's been probably waiting to come back. Like, yeah. Boy. <laughs> So, um, again, uh, yeah, I'm being gluttonous uh, because, you know what, because I've been abused. And this team has abused me for years. um, And it's hard to not, you know, flinch. Like, oh, about to hit me? Um, It's hard not to necessarily flinch. um, But, man, the talent is there. I hope it's not wasted. Um, but what would, how did you feel after watching this, this, this Crosstown series? Well, I think you made a great point with the situational hitting. That's really been the Cubs' major scuffle of late. Like, believe it or not, the bullpen's been a little bit better. Even uh, our guy Craig, he's been pitching. Not great, obviously, but maybe he has some value, which we'll okay. take at this point, which was completely valueless. 
but there wasn't a lot of situational hitting in that Cardinal series or the White Sox series for the Cubs. And mm. that was a big difference really from all season. Now, obviously they didn't get great starting pitching uh, because that White Sox lineup was absolutely clobbering that ball out of there. But uh, it was great to at least see you Darvish because he is technically the ace of the staff come in and be a stopper. We needed a victory. We needed a good start. And uh, for him to come out there and, and just pitch really well against that good lineup, you know, it was little encouraging things, nothing over the moon where you're just thinking, oh, man, this is amazing. But it's good to see the Cubs, at least compared to the last couple of years, sometimes when they scuffle, I mean, it's just prolonged where you're just seeing over and over lack of hitting, non-consistent pitching, bullpen issues. And for them to have a tough week, and yeah, they were in a lot of ball games. They were out of a couple, but they were able to still come away with some positives and enough wins where they're not at all really that jeopardized in the division. I think you're just fine. You're just hoping that they can go back to what they were a couple of weeks ago when they were arguably one of the best teams in baseball. Yeah, they, you, they were up there with the Dodgers, if not a little bit past the Dodgers. And yeah, I mean, for, as, a, as a friend of Cub fans, I definitely want the same. I mean... Guys playing a different uh, league, it's not that big of a deal. Well, for us too. I mean, if both teams are in the playoffs, that is content, baby. Facts. That's good stuff for us. But I do, I do believe both teams, due to the expansion that's taking place, and it's probably going to be staying in place. But I do think with sixteen teams making it to the playoffs, because I mean, even right now, both teams wouldn't even be wild card. So I mean, there's still a wild card option. You know what I'm saying? Um, I think since the Sox, like you told me, are tied with Cleveland, um, it probably – now, you know what? The Sox probably will be a wild card depending on their record hits in. Yeah, I think there's and just the the three division winners and mm-hmm. then five wild cards, the second best in each one and the third best in each or something like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's definitely nice to have good baseball on both sides of the town. And then sometimes during the Crosstown Series, even if one team is playing – bad or having an off year, they would rise during the series. But it was good where both quote-unquote good teams, the Sox are trying to prove consistently they're a good team. The Cubs still have all those players who've been through it. And what seems to be one of the, a, a, a really good new manager in the MLB and David Ross. So, yeah, I, I enjoy it. I look forward to what they play again at the very end of the year. I believe it's yeah, something like that. They can maybe like the last. It's I think it's either the last or second to last series of the year. So it'll be interesting if if that series can change playoff implications for one team, if not both teams, and one team either knocks the other team out or changes their seating. Uh, that listen, that actually could be the thing that could add add to a rivalry between yeah. in the future because they usually don't affect each other in that manner. Uh, as divisional teams, especially now since, what, the last four or five years, the MLB has set it up so where you really play your division at the end of the year. You know what I'm saying? Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's like all the, like instead of you going up against a weak squad, you, it's all you going up I in mean, another division, you're going up against the guys who you're fighting to get the playoffs. So it's just basically um, – it would be interesting to have that type of fire to uh, a last series uh, going into the playoffs and both of these teams – are angling to get in, and one of them knocks the other one out. Oh, one of them knocks the other one out. Oof. That's- how about how both these teams had a 90% chance to make the playoffs, basically, or better this late in August? When was the last time that happened in Chicago? I can't even Bro. think of that. Yeah, Because I think even when the White Sox were last good, the Cubs were stink up. Mm-hmm. The Cubs weren't good. Um, I mean, maybe 07 maybe the, or something, or maybe I'll say maybe the. I'll, see, I don't remember because I think that's when the Cubs were getting bounced out of the first round with yeah Lou with Lou Pinella. Yeah, it had to be in the cut. The Sox had to play won the playing game. Uh, the year the Sox won the playing game when um what was what's the name left handed pitcher that used to pitch for the Sox uh, the blackout game. Uh, I can't even remember. It'll come to me later. Um, hmm. we, we thought he was going to be super sweet. Um, had the incident with his brother, someone a friend fell off like a part of the apartment or something. Uh, what was man? I cannot think of this at all. Uh, let me see. By the way, how about uh, Jose Quintana coming back activated today? Do you do you think uh, Quintana can all at all like enhance the Cubs? Because I'm debating what his impact could potentially be. Um, well, he's going to be in the bullpen um, right now, correct? 
Well, he uh, is like in this game against the Tigers. So Chatwood started, and then he has been taken out after three innings okay. or two innings. I'm sorry, and Quintana's taken over. So it's kind of like I forgot what the exact term is. It's like a piggyback start where you get you come in after the starter, but it's still technically like yeah, a start. start. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's John Danks. Oh, shit. <laughs> I know, right? John Danks. Country boy Danks. Yeah, I bet he wish he got, he got all that bread he thought he was going to end up getting. Um, yeah, no, he did, he did get his bread. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm enjoying it um, as far as uh, – I'm enjoying it right now. It's just me and the Sox fan, uh, we're playing some scrub teams for the next week and a half, I believe. Um, it's time I'll to, them up. Time to get fat. Uh, time to get even more consistent. And it's time to start uh, input, uh, uh, putting your will on people. So I'm definitely enjoying it. So what's next? Well, you, you just said it, consistency. That'll lead us to our next question. And we're going to talk about the Bears, and I want to focus on the defense specifically. Mm -hmm. And uh, they upgraded, which at least we feel they upgraded, in getting Robert Quinn over Leonard Floyd. Certainly going to help in the pass rush. Yeah, maybe not in the passing game, which Floyd, that was one of his assets that Ryan Pace yeah. throwing at him. He's and supposedly Robert Quinn sucks against the run. We'll see how much that really matters, though. I don't know if I'm buying that. Right. But Akeem Hicks is back, supposedly playing like a monster, and – you know, this defense has to get good and consistent all over again. How do you feel about where they're at? You know, obviously we won't get to see them until week one of the regular season with no preseason games. But do you feel that they're – I think we would agree they're at their top half of the league. Are they closer to the top well, of the league? Well, whoa. ESPN Fantasy had them ranked at number eight. Well, that, well, that's what I'm saying. Let's say we we think that they're definitely in the top half. Are they closer to the top top or are they closer to the bottom half of the top half? Um, I think they're around eight. I mean, so I guess that yeah, – I think they're I, I think they're around eight. I, 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 what the defense is – a lot of the things is can they get, get, in the, get the amount of turnovers that they got. And uh, we knew the Bears were going to have the turnovers that they had two seasons ago. Uh, coming into last year. But the question is, can you get closer uh, to, to getting those turnovers? And one, Robert Quinn definitely helps because you're talking about pressure in the quarterback. Uh, so, but the only thing with that is, I would definitely be like, they're better if Eddie Goldman hadn't opted out. And I'm not dissing him opting out. I'm just pointing out the importance of having a, a top five nose tackle. You know what I'm saying? And, mm -hmm. and like when it comes to pushing the pocket and stopping the run, like I'm worried about the run uh, in the interior. And it's not like you can just pick up uh, really good nose tackles just from anywhere. Um, yeah, so I'm definitely I'm definitely worried about that. But I do like to pick up a Quinn. Um, I don't know. I, I think they're I think they're going to be better. Chuck Pagano has another year with them, but the question is, I don't know. I'm still not sure about Chuck Pagano defensively uh, because anytime I'm with you. anytime someone was a coach of the Ravens, they were like, "He's the Ravens DC." It's like, yeah, okay. Look at you know who was the Ravens DC. Ozzie Newsom putting all that talent in the, the Ravens defense, right? So yeah. anybody that came, how uh, how was Rex Ryan as a defensive thank, coach after thank, Baltimore? Thank, that's that's my point. Um, so it's just like, and then look, Rex Ryan had some times where his defense was balling. You know what I'm saying? But sure. So you know, uh, it, it wasn't uh, sustained like Baltimore's defense. Uh, so like, you can't get me with you know saying you, you, he he was he coached uh, Baltimore's defense and he's a defensive back coach. And a question I, I want to ask you was, how do you feel about Eddie Jackson? Because a friend of mine asked me, is he really the real deal? And I said, it's funny, I've been, I've been thinking about Eddie Jackson recently, and I decided to take a wait-and-see approach. And I think we all believe he's good, but is he – Is he? can he maintain being elite, I guess, is the question I want to ask you. You know, and I, mean, I hope he can because I'm a grow tired. I'm an Eddie Jackson fan, um, but is it Chuck McConnell's not using him the right way? Uh, is it some of the problems they had defensively with some of the guys being out last year so you're not getting a pass rush? So you, it's, there, there's not lobs and, and misdirect uh, mis, uh, pass balls that are there for him to catch. You know what I'm saying? So, like, mm -hmm. a lot of the things that, that got him that money was the turnovers that he was taking part in. So I'm, I'm taking a wait-and-see approach to Eddie Jackson. How do you feel about Eddie Jackson moving forward? Uh, yeah, I think last year – maybe kind of brought him down a little bit, but I think there are two factors. One was how Chuck used him. Uh, I think Chuck misused him a little bit in year one. You saw Eddie a lot of times in the box trying to make tackles as a safety. 
That ain't Eddie's strength. Eddie is not the greatest of tacklers. And, I, you know, I think he could develop and play a solid in the box safety, but his specialty is playing that center field. And that's where they had Clinton Dix. Ha ha, Clinton Dix a lot of times last year. And now I think you switch that over to Eddie Jackson, that should increase his play. And certainly I think another element too is Eddie Jackson wasn't fooling anybody last year. I mean, in 2018 – it still took him a little bit of time. I feel like around that L.A. Rams game, which I think was in November of 2018, where he made a couple uh, really nice plays on the football, and Chris Collinsworth's like, this is the best safety no one's even heard about in the NFL. And he kind of came on the scene there. So teams have certainly been game-planning him a lot more and I think attacking other parts of the Bears' defense around him. And definitely when you don't have that pass rush that the Bears had in 2018 versus 2019 – that's going to make the opportunities for those uh, pickoff passes a little bit less. But I don't necessarily disagree with you because definitely with Eddie, he's got to show me a little bit more. And, you know, I don't think uh, – I definitely think he's a very solid safety. But is he that Ed Reed safety? Exactly. I'm not sure about that's that. The, that's the question. Yeah, I think he's. I think he's beyond solid. Let me. Let like me. you can definitely have him out there for the next. I don't know, five years, whatever that yeah. contract is, and you're not really worried about anything with Eddie Bay back there. Yeah. But is he going to be that Earl Thomas, that Ed Reed? I right. Don't know. That's that's the question. That's the 